Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Jeeves and the Tie That Binds by P.G. Woodhouse. I'm your narrator, Jim Campanella. As with many of Woodhouse's stories, this one had two different titles. Here in the U.S., it was published in 1971 on Woodhouse's 90th birthday as Jeeves and the Tie That Binds, while in Britain, it was published at the same time under the title Much Obliged Jeeves. The two editions have slightly different endings. Woodhouse's American editor gave the U.S. edition its title and rewrote the last page. I will tell you in the Uvila audio epilogue in the last volume what the changes that were made to the American volume. I don't want to give out any spoilers. I had previously stated that Stiff Upper Lip Jeeves was the second to last volume in the Bertie and Jeeves stories, with Tie That Binds being the last, but I was in error. Written only a few years before his death, Much Obliged Jeeves is the second-to-last appearance of P.G. Woodhouse's Jeeves and Bertie Wooster. Their last appearance was actually in Ants Are Not Gentlemen from 1974. As far as the actual story goes, it is a direct sequel to Stiff Upper Lip Jeeves, a heretofore unknown school chum of Bertie's, Ginger Winship, is standing for the House of Commons in a by-election and Aunt Dahlia has offered the use of Brinkley Court as a general headquarters for the campaign. Dahlia persuades Bertie to come down to Brinkley to assist in the canvassing. As you can well imagine, things just go wrong from there. And now, Jeeves and the Tie That Binds. Chapter 1 as I slid into my chair at the breakfast table and started to deal with the toothsome eggs and bacon which Jeeves had given of his plenty, I was conscious of a strange exhilaration, if I got that word right. Pretty good the setup looked to me. Here I was, back in the old familiar headquarters, and the thought that I had seen the last of Totley Towers of Sir Watkin Bassett, of his daughter Madeline, and above all, of the unspeakable Spode, or Lord Sidcup, as he now calls himself, was like the medium dose for adult of one of those patent medicines which turn the system and impart a gentle glow. These eggs, Jeeves, I said. Very good, very tasty. Yes, sir. Laid, no doubt, by contented hens. And the coffee, perfect. Nor must I admit to give a word of praise to the bacon. I wonder if you noticed anything about me this morning. You seem in good spirits, sir. Yes, Jeeves. I am happy today. I am very glad to hear it, sir. You might say I'm sitting on top of the world with a rainbow round my shoulder. A most satisfactory state of affairs, sir. What's the word I've heard you use from time to time? Begins with you. Euphoria, sir. That's the one. I've seldom had a sharper attack of euphoria. I feel full to the brim of vitamin B. Mind you, I don't know how long it'll last. Too often it seems that when one is feeling finest that storm clouds begin doing their stuff. Very true, sir. Full many a glorious morning have I seen flatter the mountain tops with sovereign eye, kissing with golden face the meadows green, gilding pale streams with heavenly alchemy. Anon permit the basest clouds to ride with ugly rack on his celestial face, and from the forlorn world his visage hide, stealing unseen to rest with this disgrace. 
Exactly, I said. I couldn't have put it better myself. One always has to budget for a change in the weather. Still, the thing to do is to keep on being happy while you can. Precisely, sir. Carpe diem, the Roman poet Horace advised. The English poet Herrick expressed the same sentiment when he suggested that we should gather rosebuds while we may. Your elbow is in the butter, sir. Oh, thank you, Jeeves. Well, all right so far, after when I start. But now we come to something which gives me pause. In recording the latest instalment of the Bertram Worcester story, a task at which I am about to have a pop, I don't see how I can avoid delving into the past a good deal, touching on events which took place in previous instalments and explaining who's who and what happened when and where and why, and this will make it heavy going for those of you who have been with me from the start. Old hat they'll cry, or, if French, déjà vu. On the other hand, I must consider the new customers. I can't just leave the poor parishes to try to puzzle things out for themselves. If I did, the exchanges in the present case would run somewhat as follows. Self. The relief I felt at having escaped from Totley Towers was stupendous. New customer. What's Totley Towers? Self. For one thing, it looked on odds that I should have to marry Madeline. New customer. Who's Madeline? Self. Gussie Finknoddle, you see, had eloped with the cook. New customer. Who's Gussie Finknoddle? Self. But most fortunately, Spode was in the offing, and he scooped her up, saving me from the scaffold. New customer. Who's Spode? You see, hopeless. Confusion would be rife, as one might put it. The only way out that I can think of is to ask the old gang to let their attention wander for just a bit. There are heaps of things they can be doing. Washing the car, solving the crossword puzzle, taking the dog for a run, while I place the facts before the newcomers. Briefly then, owing to circumstances I needn't go into, Madeline Bassett, daughter of Sir Watkin Bassett of Totley Towers, Gloucestershire, had long been under the impression that I was hopelessly in love with her, and had given me to understand that if she ever had the occasion to return her betrothed Gussie Ficknottle to store, she would marry me, which wouldn't have fit in with my plans at all. She, though physically in the pin-up class, being as mushy a character as ever broke biscuit, convinced that the stars are God's daisy chains, and that every time a fairy blows its nose, a baby is born. The last thing, as you could well imagine, one would want around the home. So when Gussie unexpectedly eloped with the cook, it looked as though Bertram was in for it. If a girl thinks you're in love with her, and says she'll marry you, you can't very well voice a preference for being dead in a ditch. Not if you want to regard yourself as a chevalier, as the expression is, which is always my aim. But just as I was about to put in my order for sackcloth and ashes, up, as I say, Pop Spode, now going about under the alias of Lord Sidcup. He had loved her since she was so high, but had never got around to mentioning it, and when he did so now, they clicked immediately, and the thought that she was safely out of circulation and no longer a menace was possibly the prime ingredient in my current euphoria. I think that makes everything clear to the meanest intelligence, doesn't it? Right-ho, so we can go ahead. Where were we? Oh, yes. I had just told Jeeves I was sitting on top of the world with a rainbow round my shoulder. 
but expressing a doubt as to whether this state of things would last, and how well founded that doubt proved to be, for scarcely a forkful of eggs and bee later it was borne in upon me that life was not the grand sweet song I supposed it to be, but as you might say, stern and earnest and full of bumps. Was I mistaken, Jeeves? I said, making idle conversation as I sipped my coffee. Or, as the mists of sleep shredded away this morning, did I hear your typewriter going? Yes, sir. I was engaged in composition. Ah, a dutiful letter to Charlie Silversmith, I said, alluding to his uncle, who held the post of butler at Deverell Hall, where we had once been pleasant visitors. Or possibly a lyric, in the manner of the bloke who advocates gathering rosebuds. Neither, sir. I was recording the recent happenings at Totley Towers with a club book. And here, dash it, I must once more ask what I may call the old sweats to let their attention wander while I put the new arrivals abreast. Jeeves, you must know, I'm addressing new arrivals, belongs to a club for butlers and gentlemen's gentlemen round Curzon Street way. And one of the rules there is that every member must contribute to the club book the latest information concerning the fellow he's working for. The idea being to inform those seeking employment of the sort of thing they'll be taking on. If a member is contemplating signing up with someone, he looks them up at the club book, and if he finds that he puts out crumbs for the birdies every morning and repeatedly saves golden-haired children from being run over by automobiles, he knows he's onto a good thing and has no hesitation accepting office. Whereas if the book informs him that the fellow habitually kicks starving dogs and generally begins the day by throwing the breakfast porch at his personal attendant, he is warned in time to steer clear of him. Which is all very well, and one follows the train of thought, but in my opinion such a book is pure dynamite and ought not be permitted. There are, Jeeves has informed me, eleven pages in it about me. And what will the harvest be, I ask him, if it falls into the hands of my Aunt Agatha, with whom my standing is already low? She spoke her mind freely enough some years ago, when, against my personal wishes, I was found with twenty-three cats in my bedroom, and again, when I was accused, unjustly, I need hardly say, of having marooned A.B. Filmer, the cabinet minister, on an island in a lake. To what heights of eloquence would she not soar if informed of my vicissitudes at Totley Towers? The imagination boggled, I told Jeeves, to which he replied that it wouldn't fall into the hands of my Aunt Agatha, she not being likely to drop in at the Junior Ganymede, which is what his club is called, and there the matter rested. His reasoning was specious, and although he has more or less succeeded in soothing my tremors, I still can't help feeling uneasy, and my manner as I addressed him now had quite a bit of agitation in it. Good Lord! I ejaculated. Are you really ratting up that Tartley business? Yes, sir. All the stuff about my being supposed to have pinched old Bassett's amber statuette? Yes, sir. And the night I spent in a prison cell? Is this necessary? Why not let the dead past bury the dead? Why not forget all about it? Impossible, sir. Why impossible? Don't tell me you can't forget things. You're not an elephant. I thought I had him there, but no. It is my membership in the Junior Ganymede, sir, which restrains me from obliging you. The rules with reference to the club book are very strict, 
and the penalty for omitting to contribute severe. Actual expulsion has sometimes resulted. I see, I said. I could appreciate that this put him in quite a spot, the feudal spirit making him wish to do the square thing by the young master, while a natural disinclination to get bunged out of a well-loved club urged him to let the young master boil his head. The situation seemed to me to call for what is known as a compromise. Well, couldn't you water it down a bit? Omit one or two of the juicier episodes? I fear not, sir. The full facts are required. The committee insists on this. I suppose I ought not at this point to have expressed a hope that his blasted committee would trip over banana skins and break their ruddy necks, for I seemed to detect on his face a momentary look of pain, but he was broad-minded and condoned it. Your chagrin does not surprise me, sir. One can, however, understand their point of view. The Junior Ganymede Club book is a historic document. It has been in existence for more than eighty years. Must be the size of a house. No, sir. The records are kept in several volumes. The present one dates back some twelve years, and one must remember that it is not every employer that demands a great deal of space. Demands? I should have said requires, sir. As a rule, a few lines suffice. Your eighteen pages are quite exceptional. Eighteen? I thought it was eleven. You are omitting to take into your calculations the report of your misadventures at Totley Towers, which I have nearly completed. I anticipate this will run to approximately seven pages. If you will permit me, sir, I will pat your back. He made this kindly offer because I had choked on a swallow of coffee. A few pats, and I was myself again, and more than a little incensed, as always happens when we're discussing his literary work. Eighteen pages, I mean to say, and every page full of stuff, calculated, if thrown open to the public, to give my prestige the blackest of eyes. Conscious of a strong desire to kick the responsible parties in the seat of the pants, I spoke with generous warmth. Well, I call it monstrous. There's no other word for it. Do you know what that blasted committee of yours is inviting? Blackmail! That's what it's inviting. Let some man of ill will get his hooks into that book, and what will be the upshot? Ruin, Jeeves! That will be the upshot. Ruin! I don't know if he drew himself up to full height, because I was lighting a cigarette at that moment and wasn't looking, but I think he must have done so, for his voice when he spoke was the chilly voice of one who has drawn himself up to full height. There are no men of ill will in the junior Ganymede, sir. I contested this statement hotly. That's what you think. What about Brinkley, I said, my allusion being to a fellow the agency had sent me some years previously, when Jeeves and I had parted company temporarily because he didn't like me playing the banjo. He's a member, isn't he? A country member, sir. He rarely comes to the club. In passing, sir. His name is not Brinkley, it is Bingley. I waved an impatient cigarette holder. There was in no mood to split straws, or is it hairs? His name is not the essence, Jeeves. What is the ease that he went off on his afternoon out, came back in an advanced state of intoxication, set the house on fire, and tried to dismember me with a carving knife? A most unpleasant experience, sir. Having heard noises down below, I emerged from my room and found him wrestling with the grandfather clock, 
with which he appeared to have had a difference. He then knocked over a lamp and leapt up the stairs at me, complete with cutlass. By some miracle I avoided becoming the late Bertram Worcester, but only by miracle. And you say there are no men of ill will in the Junior Ganymede Club? Ha! I said. It's an expression I don't often use, but the situation seemed to call for it. Things had become difficult. Angry passions were rising and dudgy and bubbling up a bit. It was fortunate that at this juncture the telephone toodled, causing a diversion. Mrs. Travers, sir, said Jeeves, having gone to the instrument. Chapter 2 I'd already divined who was at the other end of the wire, my good and deserving Aunt Dahlia, having a habit of talking on the telephone with the breezy vehemence of a hog-collar in the western states of America, calling his hogs to come and get it. She got this way through hunting a lot in her youth with the corn and pitchley. What with people riding over hounds and hounds taking time off to chase rabbits, a girl who hunts soon learns to make herself audible. I believe that she, when in good voice, could be heard in several adjoining counties. I stepped to the telephone well pleased. There are few males or females whose society I enjoy more than that of this genial sister of my late father, and it was quite a time since we had foregathered. She lives near the town of Margaret Snotsbury in Worcestershire, and sticks pretty closely to that rural seat, while I, as Jeeves has just recorded in the club book, had had my time rather full elsewhere of late. I was smiling sunnily as I took up the receiver. Not much good, of course, as she couldn't see me. But it's the spirit that counts. Hello, aged relative. Hello to you, you young blot. Are you sober? I felt a natural resentment at being considered capable of falling under the influence of the sauce at ten in the morning. But I reminded myself that aunts will be aunts. Show me an aunt, I've often said, and I will show you someone who doesn't give a hoot how much her obiter dicta may wound a nephew's sensibilities. With a touch of hauteur, I reassured her on the point she had raised and asked her in what way I could serve her. How about lunch? I'm not in London. I'm at home. And you can serve me, as you call it, by coming here. Today, if possible. Your words are music to my ears, old ancestor. Nothing could tickle me pinker, I said, for I'm always glad to accept her hospitality and to renew my acquaintance with the unbeatable eatables dished up by her superb French chef, Anatole, God's gift to the gastric juices. I have often regretted that I have but one stomach to put at his disposal. Staying how long? I asked. As long as you like, my beamish boy. I'll let you know when the time comes to throw you out. The great thing is to get you here. I was touched, as who would not have been, by the eagerness she showed for my company. Too many of my circle are apt when inviting me to their homes to stress the fact that they're only expecting me for the weekend, and to dwell with too much enthusiasm on the excellence of the earlier trains back to the metropolis on Monday morning. The sunny smile widened an inch or two. Awfully good of you to have me, old blood relation. It is, rather. I look forward to seeing you. Who wouldn't? Each minute will seem like an hour till we meet. How's Anatole? You're a greedy young pig, always thinking of Anatole. Difficult to help. The taste lingers. How is his art these days? At its peak. 
Well, that's good. Ginger says his output has been a revelation to him. I asked her to repeat this. It sounded to me as if she had said, Ginger says his output has been a revelation to him. And I knew this couldn't be the case. It turned out, however, that it was. Ginger, I asked. Not abreast. Harold Winship. He told me to call him Ginger. He's staying here. He says he's a friend of yours, which he would scarcely admit unless he knew it could be proved against him. You do know him, don't you? He speaks of having been at Oxford with you. I uttered a joyful cry, and she said if I did it again, she would sue me, having nearly cracked her eardrum. A notable instance of the pot calling the kettle black, as the old saying has it. She'd been cracking mine since the start of the proceedings. Know him, I said. You bet I know him. We were like, uh, uh Jeeves. Sir. Who are those two fellows? Sir. Greek, if I remember correctly. Always mention when the subject of bosom pals comes up. Would you be referring to Damon and Pythias, sir? That's right. We were like Damon and Pythias, old ancestor. But what's he doing, Shay you? I wasn't aware that you and he had ever met. We hadn't, but his mother was an old school friend of mine. I see. And when I heard he was standing for Parliament in the by-election at Margaret Snodsbury, I wrote to him and told him to make my house his base, much more comfortable than dossing at the pub. Oh, you've got a by-election at Margaret Snodsbury, have you? Under full steam. And Ginger's one of the candidates. The conservative one. You seem surprised. I am. You might say stunned. I wouldn't have thought it his dish at all. How's he doing? Difficult to say so far. Anyway, he needs all the help he can get. So I want you to come and canvass for him. This made me chew the lower lip for a moment. One has to exercise caution at a time like this. Or where is one? What does that involve? I asked guardedly. I shan't have to kiss any babies, shall I? Of course you won't, you abysmal chump. I've always heard that kissing babies entered largely into these things. Yes, but it's the candidate that does that, poor blighter. All you have to do is go from home to home urging the inmates to vote for Ginger. Well then, rely on me. Such an assignment should be well within my scope. Old Ginger, I said, feeling emotional. It will warm the what-do-you-call-its of my heart to see him again. Well, you'll have the opportunity of hotting them up this very afternoon. He's gone to London for the day and wants you to lunch with him. Does he? Egad, that's fine. What time? One thirty. At what spot? Barabolt's Grill Room. I'll be there. Jeeves, I said hanging up. You remember Ginger Winship, who used to play Damon to my Pythias? Yes, indeed, sir. They've got an election on at Market Snodsbury, and he's standing in the conservative interest. So I understood Madame de Say, sir. Oh, you caught the remark. With little or no difficulty, sir. Madame has a penetrating voice. Yes, it does penetrate, doesn't it? I said, massaging the ear I'd been holding to the receiver. Good lung power. Extremely, sir. I wonder whether she ever sang lullabies to me in my cradle. 
If so, it must have scared me cross-eyed, giving me the illusion that the boiler had exploded. However, that is not germane to the issue, which is that we leave for her abode this afternoon. I shall be lunching with Ginger. In my absence, pack a few socks and toothbrushes, will you? Very good, sir. He replied, and did not return to the subject of the club book. Chapter 3 It was with no little gusto and animation that some hours later I set out for the tryst. This ginger was one of my oldest buddies, not quite as old as Kipper Herring or Catsmeat Potter Peerbright, with whom I had plucked the Gowans fine at prep school, public school, and university, but definitely ancient. Our rooms at Oxford had been adjacent, and it would not be too much to say that from the moment he looked in to borrow a siphon of soda water, we became more like brothers than anything, and the state of things had continued after we had both left the seat of learning. For quite a while he had been a prominent member of the Drones Club, widely known for his effervescence and vivacity, but all of a sudden he had tendered his resignation and gone to live in the country, oddly enough, at Steeple Bumpley in Essex, where my Aunt Agatha has her lair. This, somebody told me, was due to the circumstance that he had got engaged to a girl of strong character who disapproved of the Drones Club. You get girls like that every now and then, and in my opinion, they are best avoided. Well, naturally, this had parted us. He never came to London, and I, of course, never went to Steeple Bumpley. You don't catch me anywhere near Aunt Agatha unless I have to. No sense in sticking one's neck out. But I had missed him sorely. Oh, for the touch of a vanished hand is how you might put it. After arriving at Barabolt's, I found him in the lobby where you have the pre-luncheon goggle before proceeding to the grill room. And after the initial what-hoeing and what a time since we metting, Inevitable when two vanished hands who haven't seen each other for ages re-established contact, he asked me if I would like one for the tonsils. I won't join you, he said. I'm not actually on the wagon. I have a little light wine at dinner now and then, but my fiancée wants me to stay off cocktails. She says they harden the arteries. If you're about to ask me if this didn't make me purse the lips a bit, I can assure you it did. It seemed to point to his having gone and got hitched up with a poppy totally lacking the proper spirit, and it bore out what I had been told about her being a girl of strong character. No one who wasn't could have dashed the cup from his lips in this manner. She had apparently made him like it too, for he had spoken of her not with the sullen bitterness of one crushed beneath the iron heel, but with devotion in every syllable. Plainly he had got it up his nose and didn't object to being bossed around. How different from me, I reflected, that time when I was engaged to my Uncle Percy's bossy daughter, Florence Cray. It didn't last long because she gave me the heave-ho and got betrothed to a fellow called Goringe, who wrote free verse. But while it lasted, I felt like one of those Ethiopian slaves Cleopatra used to push around, and I chafed more than somewhat, whereas Ginger, obviously, hadn't even started to chafe. It isn't difficult to spot when a fellow's chafing, and I can detect none of the symptoms. He seemed to think that putting the presidential veto on cocktails showed what an angel of mercy the girl was, always working with his good at heart. The Worcesters do not like drinking alone, particularly with a critical eye watching them to see if their arteries are hardening. So I declined the prophet's snort, reluctantly, for I was athirst, 
and came straight to the main item on the agenda page. On my way to Barabolt's, I had, as you may suppose, pondered deeply on this business of him standing for Parliament, and I wanted to know the motives behind the move. Looked rather cockeyed to me. Aunt Dahlia tells me you're staying with her in order to be handy to market Snarsbury, while giving the electors there the old oil, I said. Yes, she very decently invited me. She was at school with my mother, you know. She told me. How do you like it there? Oh, it's a wonderful place. Great day. Gravel soil, main drainage, spreading grounds, and company's own water. And, of course, Anatole's cooking. Ah, yes. He said, and I think he would have bared his head, only he didn't have a hat on. Very gifted, that man. A wizard, I agreed. His dinners must fortify you for the task you have to face. How's the election coming along? All right. Kissed any babies lately? Ah. He said again, this time with a shudder. I could see that I had touched an exposed nerve. What blighters babies are, Bertie, dribbling as they do at the side of the mouth. Still, it has to be done. My agent tells me to leave no stone unturned if I want to win the election. But why do you want to win the election? I'd have thought you wouldn't have touched Parliament with a ten-foot pole, I said. For I knew the society there was very mixed. What made you commit this rash act? My fiancé wanted me to, he said. And as his lips framed the word fiancé, his voice took on a sort of tremolo, like that of a male turtle dove cooing to a female turtle dove. She thought I ought to be carrying out a career for myself. Do you want a career? Not much. But she insisted. The uneasiness I had felt when he told me the Beazle had made him knock off cocktails deepened. His every utterance rendered it more apparent to an experienced man like myself that he had run up against something too hot to handle, and for a moment I thought of advising him to send her a telegram, saying it was all off, and this done to pack a suitcase and catch the next boat to Australia. But feeling that this might give offence, I merely asked him what the procedure was when you stood for Parliament, or ran for it, as they would say in America. Not that I particularly wanted to know, but it was something to talk about, other than his frightful fiancée. A cloud passed over his face, which I ought to have mentioned earlier was well worth looking at. The eyes clear, the cheeks tan, the chin firm, the hair ginger, and the nose shapely. It topped off, moreover, a body which also repaid inspection, being muscular and well-knit. His general aspect, as a matter of fact, was rather like that presented by Esmond Haddock, the squire of Deverell Hall, where Jesus' uncle Charlie Silversmith drew his monthly envelope. He had the same poetic look, as if at any moment about to rhyme June with moon. It gave the impression, as Esmond did, of being able, if he cared to, to fell an ox with a single blow. I don't know if he had ever actually done this, for one so seldom meets oxes. But in his undergraduate days he had felled people right and left, having represented the university in the ring as a heavyweight for a matter of three years. He may have included oxen among his victims. You go through hell, he said. The map still clouded as he recalled the past. I had to sit in a room where you could hardly breathe because it was as crowded as the black hole of Calcutta, and listen to addresses of welcome till midnight. 
After that, I went about making speeches. Well, why aren't you down there making speeches now? Are they giving you the day off? I came up here to get a secretary. Surely you didn't go down there without one? No, I had one all right, but my fiancé fired her. They had some sort of disagreement. I had pursed the lips a goodish bit when he told me about his fiancée and the cocktails, and I pursed them an even greater extent now. The more I heard of this girl he had got engaged to, the less I liked the sound of her. I was thinking how well she would get on with Florence Cray if they happened to meet. Twin souls, I mean to say. Each what a housemaid I used to know would have called an overbearing dishpot. I didn't say so, of course. There is a time to call someone an overbearing dishpot, and a time not to. Criticism of the girl he loved might be taken in ill part, as the expression is, and you don't want an ex-Oxford boxing blue taking things in ill part with you. Have you anyone in mind, I asked, or are you just going to a secretary bin and accepting what they have in stock? I'm hoping to get hold of an American girl I saw, something of before I left London. I was sharing a flat with Boko Fiddleworth when he was writing a novel, and she came every day and worked with him. Boko dictates his stuff, and he said she was tops as a secretary. I have her address, but I don't know if she's still there. I'm going round there after lunch. Her name's Magnolia Glennenden. It can't be! Why not? Nobody could have a name like Magnolia. They could if they came from South Carolina, as she did. In the southern states of America, you can't throw a brick without hitting a Magnolia, I've heard. But I'm telling you about this business of standing for Parliament. First of all, you have to get the nomination. How did you manage that? My fiancé fixed it. She knows one of the cabinet ministers, and he pulled strings. A man named Filmer. Not a B-Filmer. That's right. Is he a friend of yours? I wouldn't say exactly a friend. I came to know him slightly. I went to being chased with him on the roof of a sort of summer house by an angry swan. This drew us rather close together for the moment, but we never became really chummy. Where was this? At an island on the lake at my Aunt Agatha's place at Steeple Bumpley. Living at Steeple Bumpley, you've probably been there. He looked at me with mild surprise. Much as those soldiers Jesus has told me about look on each other, when at the peak of Darien, whatever that is. Is Lady Warburton your aunt? And how? She's never mentioned it. She wouldn't. Her impulse would be to hush it up. Then, good Lord, she must be your cousin. No, my aunt. You can't be both. No, I mean Florence. Florence Cray, my fiancée. It was a shock, I don't mind telling you. And if I hadn't been seated, I probably would have reeled. Though I ought to have not been surprised. Florence was one of those girls who's always getting engaged to somebody. First teaming up with Stilton Cheesewright, then me, and finally Percy Gorringe, who was dramatising her novel Spindrift. The play, by the way, had recently been presented to the public at the Duke of York's Theatre. It had laid an instantaneous egg and had closed on the following Saturday. One of the critics said he had perhaps seen it at a disadvantage because when he saw it, the curtain was up. I had wondered a good deal what effect this had had on Florence's haughty spirit. You're engaged to Florence, I yipped, looking at him with wild surmise. 
Yes, didn't you know? Nobody tells me anything. Engaged to Florence, eh? Well, well. A less tactful man than Bertram Worcester would have gone on to add, Oh, what tough luck, or something along those lines. But there was no question that the unhappy man was properly up against it. But if there's one thing the Worcesters have in heaping measure, it is tact. I merely gripped his hand, gave it a shake, and wished him happiness. He thanked me for this. You're lucky, I said, wearing the mask. Don't I know it. She's a charming girl, I said, still wearing the above. That just describes her. And intellectual, too. Distinctly, she writes novels. Always at it, yes. Have you read Spindrift? I couldn't put it down, I said, cuttingly not revealing that I hadn't been able to take it up. Did you see the play? Twice. Too bad it didn't run. Gorringe's adaptation was the work of an ass. I spotted him as an ass the first time I saw him. It's a pity Florence didn't. Yes, by the way, what became of Gorringe? When last heard of, she was engaged to him. Oh, she broke it off. Very wise of her. He had long side whiskers. She considered him responsible for the failure of the play, and told him so. She would. What do you mean she would? Her nature is to be frank, honest, and forthright. Yes, it is, isn't it? She speaks her mind. Yes, invariably. It is an admirable trait. Oh, yes, most. You can't get away with much with a girl like Florence. No. We fell into silence. He was twiddling his fingers, and a sort of what-do-you-call-it had come into his manner, as if he wanted to say something but was having trouble in getting it out. I remember encountering a similar diffidence in the Reverend Stinker Pinker when he was trying to nerve himself up to ask me to come to Tutley Towers. And you find the same thing in dogs, when they put a paw on your knee and look up into your face, but don't utter, though making it clear, that there is a subject on which they are anxious to touch. Bertie? He said at length, Hello? Bertie? Yes? Bertie? Still here. Excuse me for asking, but you have any cracked gramophone record blood in you? Perhaps your mother was frightened by one. Bertie, there's something I must tell you about Florence, though you probably know it already, being a cousin of hers. She's a wonderful girl, and practically perfect in all respects, but she has one characteristic that makes it awkward for those who love her and are engaged to her. Don't think I'm criticising her. No, no. I'm just mentioning it. Exactly. Well, she has no use for a loser. To keep her esteem, you have to be a winner. She's like one of those princesses in the fairy tales who used to set some fellows a task to perform. It might be scaling a mountain of glass or bringing her a hair from the beard of the great cam of Tartary, and then she would give them the brush off when they couldn't make the grade. I recall the princesses of whom he spoke, and I'd always thought them rather fatheads, I mean to say, what sort of foundation for a happy marriage is the bridegroom's ability to scale a mountain of glass? A fellow probably wouldn't be called on to do that more than once every ten years, if that. Gorringe, said Ginger, continuing, was a loser, and that dished him. And long ago someone told me 
she was engaged to a gentleman jockey, and she chucked him because he took a spill at the canal turn at the Grand National. She's a perfectionist. I admire her for it, of course. Of course! A girl like her is entitled to have high standards. Quite! But as I say, it makes it awkward for me. She has set her heart on my winning this market Snosbury election. Heaven knows why, for I never thought she had any interest in politics. And if I lose it, I might lose her too. So... Now's the time for all good men to come to the end of the party. Exactly. You're going to canvass for me. Well, canvass like a ton of bricks, Bertie, and see that Jeeves does the same. I've simply got to win. You can rely on us! Thank you, Bertie. Thank you ever so much. I knew you could. And now, let's go in and have a bite of lunch. <laughs>